Australia, who's been to WA? I haven't. I wish I have, but you've probably never been to this place, 400 kilometers, a little bit north of Perth. There is a wheat farm called Hutt River. Now, in 1970, the man who owns the farm renamed it, stopped paying the government taxes, and declared the property independent from the Commonwealth of Australia. See, in his view, Hutt River was now his own independent sovereign state. And the farmer decided, well, if I'm going to become an independent state, I might as well make myself a prince. So that's Prince Leonard, the ruler of Hutt River. This is a true story. This is actually true. What he does then is he, well, he needs his own currency. So he issues his own coins, his own banknotes, his own passports, even makes his own laws. There it is, his own mail system with his own mailbox, HRP, Hutt River Province Mail, with his own stamps. That's Prince Leonard. Now, this is still the case today. Prince Leonard, however, last year we just read news that he abdicated his throne, passed it on to his son, and his son is called Prince Graham. Now, most Australians, probably at least before last year, this was a little bit of a news when he abdicated and passed on the throne, most Aussies didn't even know about it. I didn't know about it. Why did you not know that there was an independent sovereign state in WA? Well, probably because our government doesn't even recognize it. No world government recognizes it. And they owe millions of dollars in unpaid taxes since 1970. But the reason why the Australian government hasn't made a big deal of it is because, quite frankly, it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? Like, apart from him and his family, no one really takes it seriously. Australia's not going to fly warplanes and send in tanks, right? It doesn't really care about this independent state. It doesn't really care about Prince Leonard or Prince Graham. His declaration of independence, you see, is a pretty puny attempt at self-rule, isn't it? And our government rightly spends no time at all worrying about him. Now, the psalm that we just read, the second psalm, which we're going to focus on, Psalm 2, you'll notice, opens up also with a declaration of independence. But who's declaring independence? Well, it says there in verse 1, it's the people on earth, the nations on earth, and their rulers and kings. They're declaring independence against God, who is the creator, and God, who has himself appointed his own ruler. Now, we're going to see how this declaration of independence plays out as we go through Psalm 2. But today, I want to do something a little bit different as well. I would like us to really use Psalm 2 as a window into the whole book of Psalms. Psalms, 150 Psalms in the collection of Psalms. By the way, the word Psalm just means song, all right? Because these were ancient songs, an ancient playlist for the people of God in pre-Jesus called Israel. So we're going to use Psalm 2 as a window into the whole collection of 150 Psalms, because as I'll hopefully show you, Psalm 2 really introduces us to the real logic and the theme of the whole playlist. But where I want us to end up is to see how this ancient playlist speaks to our modern hearts, which it does in many, many ways. So um, follow with me on your outlines. I've got three points. Let's pray and let's get into it. Father God, we pray that as we uh, look at the Psalms, not just Psalm 2, but the window of Psalm 2 that it provides for the 150 Psalms. We pray that you would help us understand the riches of this wonderful collection of songs. It already informs so many of our prayers and, prayer and, 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 and songs. 
We pray that as a result of today, we might even love it more. And we might love and cherish Jesus more because it's actually all about Him. In His name we pray. Amen. So, uh, we're going to see Psalm 2 first introduce us to two locations and four characters. I wonder if you noticed two locations and four characters. Now, two locations happen to be earth and heaven. You see, it opens up with the conflict between earth and heaven, doesn't it? So, verse 1, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. All right, the two locations, earth and heaven, but we also meet three characters, three out of the four characters. First character is a group character. Right, the nations and peoples of the earth with their kings and rulers. That's character one. Character two, of course, is God, the Lord, creator and ruler. And we find out in the next verse, the ruler in heaven. But there's also a third character, of course. He's along with God is his anointed in verse 2. Now, the word anointed there in, in the, uh, our Bibles in the Old Testament translated from Hebrew, the Hebrew word is Messiah. Right? Messiah. God's appointed, anointed, special king that the Lord has chosen to be his ruler over the earth. And so you see what the nations and the peoples are doing here is sort of what Prince Leonard did back in 1970. They're declaring autonomy, autonomy, self-rule, declaring independence. Now you think about what Prince Leonard did. He lived in Australia. He still does live in Australia. He enjoys the stability and wealth in the land that the Commonwealth of Australia provides him, and yet he declares independence. It's a shocking thing when you think about it. Now, what are the nations and the peoples in Psalm 2 doing? They live in the world created by God, the Lord. They breathe the air that He provides. They drink the water from the rain that He sends. They eat the food that comes from His hand. And yet they want to declare independence from God. Just as shocking. In fact, even more shocking, isn't it? So there's a declaration of independence. Well, what is the Lord going to do from heaven? as he looks on this action from earth. I mean, is he, is he panicking at the moment? Is he thinking, oh, I better get my act together, round up an angelic army. We better do something about this rebellion. If I don't, I might get toppled. Well, no. Look at verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven has a panic. No, he doesn't. He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. It reminds me of, um, you might know the story of the uh, tower that the people built back in Genesis 11, long, long time before this, thinking we're going to build a tower that reaches right into the heaven, into the throne room of God, because we're so great, we're so mighty, so start building this tower. And you read, as God uh, knows about their tower, it's not as if it's because the tower is kind of reaching to his throne room and he's getting nervous. It says there in Genesis 11 that the Lord says, let us go down so that we might see this tower that they have built. Right, this tower that was so impressive from the earth actually couldn't even be seen from heaven that God has to get the uh, binoculars out, the telescope out. He has to peer down just to even see it. It's a bit like that here, right? This rebellion, this in independence declaration, God's laughing. He's saying, well, this is a joke. Look at verse 5. He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, another word for Jerusalem, my holy mountain. 
You see, God's laughing at them. He's laughing at them like the Australian government, like you and me laugh at Prince Leonard. Because in the face of their declaration of independence, he gives his counter-declaration, right? You've got a declaration, I've got one too. Here's mine. I have appointed my special ruler, the Messiah. And look what I've given him power to do. So let's read on, verse 7. Now we get the, the third character. Remember, the third character is the Messiah. He's speaking now. Verse 7, he says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. This king, this Messiah, is the son of God. Now that's familiar to us because we all know Jesus is the son of God. But actually, even back then, the Son of God was a significant phrase, even way before Jesus. I want to show you uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 7. It was actually good that we read 1 Samuel 15, uh, the first Bible reading. You remember that? God had uh, allowed His people to appoint their first king, Saul. Saul was an abject failure. God rejects Saul. The next king is the one that God chooses, is the Messiah, and that king's name is David. And look what God says to King David, the one He chose, Back in 2 Samuel 7, let me read out these verses. He says to David, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. That's a temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And notice this. I will be his father and he will be my son. Pretty much Psalm 2, just in reverse order, isn't it? So Psalm 2, as we read about this one that God gives the decree as his son, is not just any king, is it? It's David, or at least it's the Davidic king, the, the one from the line of David, one of David's descendants. He's the one that God says, here's my counter-decree, this is my counter-declaration, you're my king. And then let's read on, let's back to Psalm 2, verse 8. It's still the king speaking, he says, ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Right, so we've got a movement here, the two locations, remember, earth, heaven, right? It starts with earth against heaven, but then it goes from heaven, the decree, back down to earth. So it starts with the kings of the earth, rage and plot against heaven, but then God from heaven laughs at them, and so he appoints his king to rule on earth. And then he gives this king all the earth as his inheritance. And what we don't see in this psalm is any sort of mention of battle, any mention of armies, because it's really one of those, it's over before it's even begun. There's no contest. And that's the perspective of, 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 of heaven, at the declaration of independence that comes from the nations and their kings on earth. It's really a no contest. Now, I think that's really important for us to remember because well, right now, I don't know if you've noticed, but almost every single Christian conference that's on now raises, in fact, a lot of them have the theme of how our nation is changing and how the anti-Christian, anti-church sentiments are just getting stronger and stronger and stronger. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but that is one of the themes of just the conference I went on this last week and another conference is right now happening in Melbourne for Anglicans. It's, it's all about the rising tide of anti-Christian sentiment and how the laws are pushing against the church. And, and I don't know if you've ever chatted to people who have read someone like Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, the biologist, the professor, 
who was a, not just an atheist, but a really vocal and loud and smart atheist. And when you've ever talked to someone who's read Dawkins or you read Dawkins yourself, it, you can feel really defeated. You can feel really scared. Because it seems like as a Christian, you're really under pressure and, and, and the opposition is so strong. But let's for a moment take the perspective of Psalm 2. Because you see, one day Richard Dawkins and anyone who has a particularly anti-Jesus, anti-church, anti-God agenda will face the God that he doesn't believe in, but the God who nevertheless created him. The God who created everything. The God who gave Dawkins his brain, and I'd say is a little bit smarter than Dawkins. And you see, anyone therefore like Dawkins who shakes their fist at God will, when they face God, like in Psalm 2, the nations, when they face God, seem so very small. Their arguments will seem laughable. Their rebellion will be a joke. Now, I'm not saying that there is not a place for the questioning and the asking and the seeking proof and evidence and using your brain. In fact, if you come to our church, you'll know we encourage that. That's why we've just had fresh for five weeks. And then we're going to follow up with even more time to nut out questions and discuss um, called Next Steps. We want people to ask questions, to seek evidence. But you see, the difference between those who do it like Dawkins with an axe to grind against Christians, really nothing you can say, no answer you give will ever convince them. They've already made up their mind. There's a difference between that and those who I know even here, who are not yet followers of Jesus, but you are genuinely, open-mindedly seeking reasons to believe. There's a vast difference, isn't there? Now, let's come back to the passage. Because of what God has decreed from heaven about earth, then really there's only one response that's appropriate, isn't it? So let's read on the rest of the psalm. Verse 10, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss His Son, or He'll be angry, and your way will lead you to destruction, for His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Um, that idea of kissing the Son, it's the ancient world. The idea when you kiss a king is to pay them homage, to submit yourself under their rule. Now here, I said there were four characters. We've met three of them. Here's the fourth character. Right, the three characters so far, the kings and rulers are one, the Lord is the other, the Messiah is the third. Who's the fourth character? Well, it's a little bit hidden, but the fourth character are all those who at the end of the psalm are called to take refuge in the Son. Right, not just the kings. Right, the psalmist, the writer of the psalms is speaking to the king. Yes, you guys be wise, you take refuge. But he's also speaking to us, all of us. We're the fourth character. We readers and hearers are asked to what? Find the way of blessing by being wise and submitting ourselves also under God's rule. That would be the right thing to do. Now you see here now how this idea of blessing that it ends with and the idea of being wise will link Psalm 2 with the first Psalm. There's a reason why we read Psalm 1 straight into Psalm 2 and Sarah read it really well. Flowing one from the other it could almost function as one Psalm with two parts. Because Psalm 1, you'll remember, opens with, Blessed is the one who walks in the way of God. Psalm 2 closes with, Blessed is the one. Right? Same idea, same opening, same closing. But Psalm 2 is the one who takes refuge in the King, the Messiah. 
Psalm 1 paint a picture of what the wicked do, which is the opposite of what the righteous do, of the way of blessing. And they won't stand in the day of judgment, says Psalm 1. But Psalm 2 paints another picture of the wicked, because who are the wicked in Psalm 2? Well, they're the ones who rebel and declare autonomy and independence against God's rule. And what will happen to them? Well, it's the same as what will happen to the wicked in Psalm 1. They will be destroyed. So you see, Psalm 1 and 2 function together. And they tell us, the fourth character, the readers, hey, you know what? Don't be like the wicked. Don't be like the rebels, the rebellious kings of the earth. Be wise. Walk in the ways of God. Take refuge in the Son of God, the King. Submit to His rule. And you will find blessing. Or another word for that, you will find the good life. Right? You will find happiness in that. All good? That's Psalm 2. Pretty straightforward. Well, as I said before, I also want to use Psalm 2 as a window into the rest of the collection. So here we go. Let's have a look at the rest of this ancient playlist of 150 songs. Now, speaking about ancient playlists, before digital music and streaming like Spotify and Apple Music and others, um, some of you will remember, many of you won't, but you used to buy entire albums, and especially even before CDs, and you couldn't skip tracks, you had to listen to the, the songs in an album in order. Who remembers that? I remember that. Oh, some of you, that's awesome. And who, who else remembers, who remembers those? Do you know what those are? Cassette tapes, right? And, and, and back in my day when I was like a teenager, we used to make mixtapes. So you find a girl that you like, and what you do is you would basically break the law, pirate music, and um, you would put them on a mixtape. But here's the thing, you would have to think about the order of the songs, that you would put on that mixtape, right? Because you can't just skip songs. You can't just press random and go to... No, you have to listen to an order. So, for example, you would start with a song like Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go and end with a song like I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. But you wouldn't start with I Will Always Love You because it's just too much too quickly, right? And you couldn't end with Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Do you see what I mean? Like the order actually matters. Okay, you can substitute that with songs that you actually know. Um, but the order actually matters. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people think the Psalms, right, the biggest book of our Bible, 150 Psalms right in the middle of our Bible, random collection, no order whatsoever. Well, actually, that's false. The ordering does make sense. You see, the final form of this 150 uh, songs was collected sometime after Israel, God's people, had returned from exile. After Israel had been humiliated, sent to Babylon for their sin, but then God had brought them back. After the first temple under King Solomon had already been destroyed and the second temple had to be rebuilt. After the Davidic line of kings had been deposed and now they were back but they no longer had a king. They collected the 150 Psalms, written over hundreds of years likely, but it was finally collected at that point, about 400 years before Jesus came. And this order and arrangement is their playlist, and it makes sense, and it tells a story. So let me give you the overview. We see that there are five divisions, all right, five books in the book of Psalms. It's a collection with five smaller chapters, I suppose. And it has an introduction and it has a conclusion. Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction. Psalms 1 and 2, and this is why we're looking at them today, they set up the expectation, as any good introduction does, of what the collection is all about. 
And as we've already seen, it's about the way of blessing for those who trust God and take refuge in the Messiah. It's about how God will rule through the Messiah, the king, and not just any king, David or David's descendants. And how the son will reign and rule over all the nations and all the rebellious ones. That's the introduction. That sets our expectations for the whole collection. Now, it will finish with five psalms as a conclusion, 146 to 150. We know that's a collection because they're all what we call hallelujah psalms. Hallelujah means praise the Lord in Hebrew. And they will end with those hallelujah psalms because all of the things that set up in 1 and 2 will have been achieved by 146 and 150. All right, God's purposes for the way of blessing and for those who take refuge in the Son and the rule of the Son will have been achieved and it can finish the collection with hallelujah. But what happens in between the intro and the conclusion? If you have your Bibles or even your apps and you're in Psalm 2, go to Psalm 3. Because what you'll see, and we won't read it out, but you'll see Psalm 3 opens with this. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. And that's the first psalm of book one. Now, here's the thing. When you read those little italic bits in our Bibles under the psalms, that actually was part of the psalms. It wasn't just an editorial put in by our English translators, like the chapter headings in other books. In the Hebrew, it would actually be verse one of the psalm. And you'll see Psalm 3 is a Psalm of David. Psalm 4 is too. Psalm 5 is too. Psalm 6, 7, 8. Psalm, the books 1 and 2 are full of Psalms of David. But when we meet David, the Messiah, what's he going through? Is he victorious, like in Psalm 2? Is he ruling the nations? Is he living the life of blessing? Well, no, he's not. Just glance down at Psalm 3, or 4, or 5, or 6, or 7, and he is in distress. He is fleeing from his enemies. In Psalm 3, it's his own son, actually. And he's not praising God because he's happy. He's actually lamenting. He's crying. Lament means to, to cry, to groan, to be sad. So even though he is taking refuge in God, he's experiencing pain. Even though he's the Messiah, he's God's chosen son, He's not ruling the kings of the earth. In fact, they're rebelling against him and largely succeeding in their rebellion. And that's the picture you get when you actually meet David after Psalm 2 into Psalm 3. And so you see that books 1 and 2 are a collection that are actually about the suffering king. Not the victorious king, the suffering king. As we meet David, the historical Messiah, he is mostly lamenting. And that's books one and two of the Psalms. And then you get to book three, the third chunk of collections of Psalms. Now, David will disappear from the scene, but the songs will now be the songs of the people as a whole. But what's the situation like? Is it getting better? No, no it's getting worse. In fact, book three is probably the most depressing book of the whole Psalter. And it ends with a psalm like Psalm 89, the last psalm of book 3. And look at the words that it has. It says things like this. You have rejected, so in a God, you've spurned, you've been very angry with your Messiah, your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? You see, by the end of book 3, 
you realize that Psalm 2 is nowhere to be seen. In fact, the psalmist is saying all those promises back in Psalm 2 about the victorious David, where are they? Because where's the nation now? Well, by Psalm 89, read the rest of the psalm, it's pretty clear. They're in exile. They're far away from the land. Their nation is in tatters. Their kings have gone, deposed. Their land, their temple destroyed. And the promises of God to, his David, and his, uh, to David and his people seem impossibly distant. The way of blessing of Psalm 1 and 2, where the wicked gets destroyed and God's righteous triumphs, that's all in the past. It's all in crisis. So you see, by the end of book 3, you not only have suffering king, you have suffering people, and they're in exile. See, there's a storyline here, right? Then we hit book 4. Book 4 will tell us that there is a solution. You get to the pits, really, by book 3. But there is a solution to the problem. And it begins, book 4, with Psalm 90. And if you're a quick flipper, go to Psalm 90, and you'll see the Psalm 90 is a psalm or a prayer of Moses, the servant of God. It takes us to Moses. Why Moses? Well, it's because book four is really about going back to the very beginning. See, if there's a big, this would be hope. You've got to go back to the beginning, says the collection. It's not going to be in the historical kings. David and Solomon, as great as they were, they burnt brightly, but very shortly. It's not going to be in the historical kingdom of Israel, because they have being exiled now and away from the land. The only hope you've got is in God's promises all the way back to their forefather Abraham, all the way back to how he brought them in the first place out of Egypt under Moses, that's why Moses is there, to make them his own people right from the beginning. And so the theme of book four is there's going to be, need to be a new exodus a new reforming of God's people, a new way that he's going to go back to those old promises. And, and book four ends with Psalm 106, where the people are crying out, save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So in the midst of exile, here is hope. God, do what you did in all those ages past. Regather us. And that's Book four, and then we hit book five. The final book will show how God will do that. Remember, as I said, books one and two, historical David. Book three, David disappears. Book four, I think there's only one or two Psalms of David. He's not really there. It's almost as if David and his dynasty has died. Well, book five is resurrection. Because in book five, you will meet a new David, a perfect David, or as I call him, David plus, right? He is a Messiah in the model of David, but the things said about him in book five are just way beyond the CV of David in books one and two. See, you've got Psalm 110, which, by the way, is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, right? The most quotations come from Psalm 110. And look what it says. This is in book five. David is saying, the Lord says to my Lord, David has a Lord? I thought he was king. Interesting. New Testament picks that one up. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. This is Psalm 2 language, isn't it? David has died, 
but now he's risen again. And that's book five. And that's where the hope is. And so the collection ends with God restoring the Davidic kingship and restoring his people and gathering them from exile and starting again. God is going to rule and reign through his son, a greater David, a David plus. And so while the Psalms open with mostly laments, first half of the Psalms, books 1, 2, and 3, you're going to find the majority, there's going to be praise Psalms, well, but the majority are laments. Guess what? By books 4 and 5, the majority is praise. And then it ends with those five Psalms, as I said, at the end. Everything is being fulfilled now. So everything praises God. How does the psalm end? So the book of Psalms end, 150. Let everything that has breath in it praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That's how it ends. That's your playlist. There's a story to it, isn't there? And then it's really exciting when you know that and you come to the New Testament, isn't it? Because everything gets fulfilled. Jesus, after he's risen from the dead, he's talking to disciples on the road to Emmaus, as well as just after that to his disciples in the room as he appears to them. And he says, essentially, the Psalms spoke about the suffering of the Messiah and the glory that was to follow. That's how he fulfills it. Right? He fulfills the picture that the Psalms paint about the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory to follow. Now, that's what we've seen in the Psalms, isn't it? It's about the suffering of the Messiah and the glory to follow. It's about that lament to praise. It's about how God will fulfill Psalm 1 and 2, even though his people had to go through exile. It's about how David will die, but David will rise again. So it's not surprising when you come to Jesus at his baptism. Remember, God speaks from heaven, and what does he say? This is my son. And the words come directly from Psalm 2. And in Acts chapter 13, when Paul is preaching about Jesus, the raised Messiah, he again quotes Psalm 2, and he says, here's the fulfillment of Jesus being the Son and God being his Father. Because Jesus is that David plus. He is the ruling, reigning, perfect Son of God, Messiah, that Psalm 2 spoke about. And the whole book of Psalms shows that he is the solution to the problems. And because of him, God's promises are fulfilled. God's people are brought back from exile. The new exodus, the new beginning happens. And because of him, lament can turn into praise. So let's come to my final point. Um, The summary application from Psalm 2, back to Psalm 2, is really the summary of what the whole of the Psalms is about altogether. And I'm going to put it to you in one sentence so you can capture it. If you like, this is what Psalm 2, but also the whole collection of Psalms is about. It's about the way of wisdom and blessing. And how you get it is by submitting to Jesus the King, because it's all fulfilled in Him. And by taking refuge in what He's done for us. Okay? That's really the message of the whole collection of Psalms, as well as Psalm 2. And once you realize that, you realize how this actually speaks to us today. Because let's think about it. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the nations, how they rebel against the Lord in Psalm 2. Well, that's not just them, is it? It's not just the Richard Dawkinses. That's actually a picture of all humanity, is it not? I mean, 
They might do it vocally and loudly. We do it quietly and politely, but we're still rebels. How so? Well, guess what? We live in God's world, don't we? We breathe the air He provides. We enjoy the good things He gives us. But we don't love God with our whole hearts and souls and minds and strength. We don't love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Those two things, by the way, are the very things that God requires of us as His creatures, as we live in His world, enjoy His good gifts, love Him, love our neighbors. We fail at that, and we fail at that every day, don't we? We'd rather love created things than the Creator. We'd rather live selfishly than love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And so, and so from God's point of view, that's our own little declarations of independence, not quite as vocal and rudely and loudly as the Kings or Dawkins, but in our own way. And as Psalm 2 has shown us, God has set a day when that kind of rebellion, all kinds of rebellion, will be judged. And He's appointed the judge, His Son. And we know now it's King Jesus from the line of David. Jesus, the Messiah, will judge because He's the ruler. And so He's calling us before it's too late to turn to Jesus, submit to His rule. But here's the thing, because King Jesus suffered and died and he did it for his people, for you and me, taking on the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion, he takes it on the cross in our place. The wonderful news is when you face Jesus as judge and you take refuge in him, you're safe. You can be forgiven because no matter what you've done, If this Jesus, who is your judge and king, has already paid and died for you, you can find shelter in him and refuge in him. Because he's already taken all the punishment. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you know that do you need to you need to know that today your sins can be forgiven. Today you can have eternal life. Today you can lead and 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 have the blessed life. If you take refuge, trust in Jesus and turn to Him as your King. So that's one way that we take refuge in what He's done. But there's another way. And I want to end with this. Remember, the movement of the Psalms is from lament to praise. And so you've got to realize that until King Jesus comes back, we will find ourselves at least half the time, or probably more often than not, echoing the laments of so many of the Psalms. See, those who submit themselves to Jesus and take refuge in Him will find ourselves often suffering instead of victorious, crying instead of praising. And maybe right now that is your experience. You're in a period, a season of deep lament, where there's a big distance between what you thought life was going to be about, the ideal, what you expected, versus what you're actually facing, the real. There's a huge gap between the ideal and the real, between expectation and reality. And because of that, you are lamenting. Dear friends of Karen and I, in fact, um, Dan is uh, Dan and Teresa, uh, godparents to one of our kids. They found out in January or just before January that Teresa, who was pregnant, the baby was going to have 
a rare genetic defect. The medical prognosis of this particular genetic defect means that the baby, the term they use is incompatible with life. Where 50% would not even get born alive, and 10%, only 10% might live after the age of one. We went to baby Evie's funeral a week and a half ago. She lived 77 days, the bulk of which was in hospital, in and out. That's reality for our dear friends Dan and Teresa, who are followers of Jesus. But you know, as much as they're grieving still and will be for the rest of their lives, as much as throughout the whole journey, even while Evie was alive, we grieved with them. Do you know what part of the Bible they kept coming back to? What part of the Bible they read to each other, they read to baby Evie? What part of the Bible they quoted on the Facebook, private Facebook group after Evie's funeral? The Psalms. And so Psalm 84 was the one they put on their Facebook page straight after the funeral Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. But all throughout Evie's short life, just different psalms. Because that's what the psalms can do, you see. That's why it's so great to have this collection of songs, because it gives voice to your laments. And so let me encourage you to use them when you lament. Psalm 79 that we saw last week, John preached to us. How long, O Lord? Psalm 88, I am overwhelmed with troubles. Turn your ears to my cry. Psalm 22, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. But even as you lament, hope, take refuge in Jesus, the Son See, here's the thing. Jesus underwent the most painful laments and suffering so that you and I would never have to. That last psalm I just quoted, Psalm 22, you might know the other bit from Psalm 22, more familiar to you. It has this line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very lines Jesus used on the cross. You see, the Son was forsaken so that you will never have to be forsaken. And that's why when you take refuge in Him and continue to trust in Him as your King, He will in time take you from the laments to praise. It may not be right now. It may not be until He returns. But know this, even through the valleys as you lament, he promises to be your shepherd. Psalm 23. Your refuge. Psalm 2 and a whole bunch of other psalms. Your rock, your redeemer. Psalm 19. And they're just all over the place. You take the images of God. Your fortress, your shield. And when Elder Nelson prayed, he opened with words that were just from psalms. He will never leave you or forsake you. 
And he promises that one day he will return when he will inherit and rule over all people and all creation will be made new and your laments and cries will turn to resounding hallelujahs. So look forward to that as you refuge in him. Let's pray. I'll get the band up. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in the midst of our pain and struggles, you underwent what we could not possibly bear, which is the punishment for our sins so that we would never have to face it. And you promised to walk with us and you will take us to praise. We thank you for that. Amen.